morning, you can have a seat. I want to welcome you this morning. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Eric. Been around here for a while. <laughs> uh, I find that uh, as I'm getting older, my glasses are actually less help to me, so I'm going to take them off. Um, today is the first Sunday in Advent, a season that the church has traditionally observed for centuries in preparation for the coming of Messiah. And uh, our, pa- our scripture for today is going to be from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I'll read that and then we'll pray. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come this morning with open ears and open hearts to receive from you, from your word. I pray that as we enter this season of Advent, this preparation for Christmas, that you would again remind us um, what we're celebrating And that we're not just celebrating a baby who was born 2,000 years ago, but a Savior who is coming back for us. So we lift up this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're having a family-style service, and um, brevity is not one of my uh, virtues, but I will try not to go too long. But I know we have kids here this morning, so I want to ask you, are you excited about Christmas? Yeah. Uh, my daughter raises her hand. Yes, of course. Well, this, this weekend is usually the weekend people start getting ready, getting their houses ready for Christmas. You know, dragging out the uh, boxes of decorations, um, putting the Christmas lights up on the house, clearing that spot for the tree, maybe even getting a room ready for relatives, Um, moving that couch that you probably haven't moved in several months and are afraid of what is going to be under that couch. There's some cleaning and some preparation that needs to take place. And uh, that's what this passage in Luke 3 is about today. God has sent John the Baptist to get people ready for his promised salvation in Jesus. So Luke starts out by placing John's ministry in the context of history. As you notice, he names seven leaders, seven seven different leaders, 
starting from basically the leader of the known world at that time, Tiberius Caesar, down to kind of regional politicians and all the way down to the local religious leaders. Now, the mention is important for a couple of reasons. For one, God doesn't include something in Scripture that's not important, uh, so we know that. But for a couple of reasons, for one, and it's easy to skip, kind of skip over this, you know, it's just prefatory material, but it's important that these seven leaders are named because, one, it shows the, the complicated and corrupt political climate that this message comes into. Um, I don't have time to go through the list of these people today. Uh, needless to say, most of these seven were infamous for one reason or another. They were known for their wickedness. Um, Israel was under subjection to Rome, and yet at the same time there was cooperation with some Jewish political figures. And there was an equally corrupt kind of religious Judaism that was going on at the same time. Times were dark. If you lived in that period, it, it was a dark time for you politically and religiously. But it was into that very darkness that God chose to speak for the first time in some 460 years. God had not directly spoken to his people. Uh, 19th century clergyman J.C. Ryle remarked on the passage this way, Let us learn never to despair about the cause of God's truth, however black and unfavorable its prospects may appear. At the very time when things seem hopeless, God may be preparing a mighty deliverance. And so he was. The other reason why Luke's uh, historical reference here is important is perhaps obvious. It sets John the Baptist's ministry and therefore Jesus' ministry to come in the context of history. Well, why is that important? Well, not that we need external sources to validate what we know from Scripture, but you can read about these. You can read about Caesar. You can read about Pilate. You can read about these key figures in extra-biblical sources, like Josephus was kind of the primary source of the history in that region in that day, or in Philo, or even um, you can see from inscriptions of that time mentions of Pilate and some of these other characters. It sets John the Baptist's ministry and Jesus' ministry in the context of history. Uh, a few weeks ago, I came across a, uh, an article uh, via social media. I don't remember. I think maybe Lenny posted it. Um, but a, lo a lot of different people had posted it. And I was just kind of flipping through, and it was entitled, Christianity, the World's Most Falsifiable Religion. And I thought, oh, great. What's this about? So I decided to read it. Well, think about it. Think about other religions you're familiar with, other world religions. Christianity is the only religion based in historical events that can be examined and verified. Unlike any other religion whose central claims can't be historically tested and are therefore beyond falsifiability or inquiry, 
there aren't people and places and events that you can look at and verify. They just have to be believed with blind faith. A couple of examples. In Islam, for example, Muhammad had a private encounter that can't be tested historically. Or Mormonism. Joseph Smith had a private counter, encounter that also can't be tested. Or you think of uh, Buddhism and Hinduism. Well, their philosophies you either choose to believe or not believe. They're not tied to specific events or times or places that can be investigated. Christianity, on the other hand, has a significant amount, according to this article, a significant amount of historically verifiable data which forms the bedrock of the faith. Ours is the only religion that invites people to come and see, to investigate its claims to see if it's true. So when you share the gospel with family or friends or co-workers, you don't have to rely on some convincing philosophy or even your own personal experience. Uh, although evidence of a changed life can be especially helpful, especially with, especially with people who knew you before you were a Christian. The gospel is based on historical and verifiable events. John the Baptist was a real person. Jesus was a real person who was really crucified and really died. And three days later, the tomb was really empty. Of course, even when claims can be examined and verified, they still have to be believed. It reminds me of a saying that I heard many years ago, don't confuse me with the facts I've already made up my mind. In fact, I had a, I had a co-worker many years ago when I worked in Alaska in the summers who I was sharing the gospel with. And he was a nice guy, very receptive, and finally came to a point where he said, you know what, Eric, I believe what you're saying is true. And it sounds good, but I can't follow Jesus because it'll mess up all the plans I already have for my life. Like the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 who went away sad. But John's references set, or Luke's references set John the Baptist's ministry in the context of history. Well, preparing people to receive God's promised salvation was what John's message was about. When John's father, Zechariah, was told of his birth back in Luke chapter 1, the angel said, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Note first that in verse 2 of Luke chapter 3, it says, The word of God came to John. As John Piper put it, 
Like all the prophets of the Old Testament, John's authority and power came not from himself, but from God. He was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, and so now he comes to preach with a word from God and in the power of God's Spirit. John the Baptist was the forerunner who was spoken of in Isaiah 40, which we read earlier, which Luke quotes here in chapter 3. After 460 years of silence, God was once again speaking to His people. Let's look at verse 3. And He went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, what's most important here is not the baptism part, but what it affirms, repentance. As Daryl Bach points out, Luke's portrayal of John stresses, stresses John's message more than it does his baptism. It's an affirmation, a washing that looks with hope for God's coming and lives in light of one's relationship to Him. John's baptism was a step on the way to the forgiveness that only Jesus will bring. Like John the Baptist himself, this baptism of repentance points to faith in Jesus. Now, John's primary audience was a Jewish one, and John's calling them to repentance, which in itself would have been offensive to Jews who believed that because they were Abraham's children, they were good to go. We know that repent means to turn, and God's people not only needed to turn from their sinful behavior, but they needed to turn from that sinful perspective that they had about their standing as the nation of Israel. Their external following of the rules and their identification with the nation of Israel, they believed, gave them right standing with God. But John warns them later, if you go on to read uh, further in Luke chapter 3, John has some pretty stern warnings that identifying oneself with a family or a church or a nation isn't what matters. Being Abraham's children isn't enough. What matters is personal repentance. In order to prepare for God's promised salvation in the Messiah, to see the mightier one who was to come as the promise of God, each individual needed to turn from their sin. And as John told them, tells them in verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Now, it's important at this point to stress again that the repentance John was calling for was not a human work that somehow merited the forgiveness of God. Just as for us today, repentance is not a work that we do that earns favor with God, that earns us or affords us forgiveness.
it, its purpose was to point people to the Savior who was to come and forgive sins. Ephesians, passages like Ephesians chapter 2 make it very clear that salvation is a gift from God alone, apart from any work that we can do. It's important for us to see the close connection, however, between repentance and forgiveness. I don't want to, I don't want to downplay it too much because there's a very important connection here between repentance and forgiveness. Because while no amount of repentance can earn God's love or God's favor or God's forgiveness, without repentance, no soul will ever be saved. Repentance is the telltale mark of the grace of God at work in our lives. Saving faith and true repentance are always found together. Saved souls are repentant souls. If you look at uh, the two other, in the two other synoptic gospels in Matthew and Mark, where uh, John the Baptist's ministry is mentioned, uh, Luke's a little different in that um, Matthew and Mark both quote the first verse of that Isaiah 40 passage, but John, but Luke goes on to quote the next two verses. Not only are people to personally prepare through repentance. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. But John, um, but Luke includes, excuse me, when I, was a, when I was first a Christian and I was excited about telling other people about Jesus and I didn't know a whole lot about the Bible, I was very confused. I think Andrew's talked about this before too. I was very confused and I had somebody ask me who wrote the gospel of John and I didn't at the time, know the difference between John the Baptist and John the Apostle. And uh, so as I, I know the difference now, but as I read this, I'm like, John's talking about, Luke's talking about John, John so I'm getting a little confused. Um, Luke quotes the next two verses in that Isaiah 40 passage. Not only are people to personally prepare through repentance, but Luke tells us that God himself is preparing the way. He says, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. God is coming in power, and nothing will stand in his way. He's speaking again for the first time, in 460 years, he's bringing the promised salvation that we read about in Isaiah, that we read about in Genesis 3, for that matter. God is preparing a way, and nothing will stand in his way. It says here that basically he's going to remove every obstacle. God is removing all the obstacles for his people as he delivers them. Now, we don't have time to look at all the references, but this imagery of straight paths and filling valleys and making mountains low, this imagery of 
a highway um, is all throughout Isaiah. This imagery of a highway as a means of access to God. And I, look, I do want to look at one. Um, you can turn there if you'd like to. Isaiah 57. Isaiah chapter 57. Verses 14 and 15. Isaiah 57, verses 14 and 15. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. There are other places too, but the important thing here is that those who travel on the highway on that highway are the, contri- on the, are the contrite and lowly in spirit. But if you were one of Luke's Jewish readers, you would have been familiar with the rest of Isaiah, and you would have understood the further implications of every mountain and every hill being made low. That same imagery is, um, is seen again, especially in Isaiah chapter 2, I was looking at before the service started um, this idea of bringing low where God will bring low and humble the proud and the idolater. As I was uh, studying this passage, I was thinking about um, this idea of God coming in power and uh, making the high places low and filling in valleys. I thought about highway building. Well, there's not a lot of highway building that goes on today, but if you've driven over Snoqualmie Pass in the last five years or however long it's been, you've seen the work that they're doing up there. They've had a lot of problems with um, avalanches and rock slides, so they built, they're building a new section of highway. It's taken them a while. And it's pretty amazing the amount of material that gets moved. If it's in the way of the planned roadway, it gets blasted or ground down or scraped off into the lake. God is preparing to clear a highway for His people. He's coming in power and judgment, and only the humble who rely on Him will be spared. The proud and the idolater are going to get blasted or ground down or scraped off. Nothing's going to stand in the way of God's salvation that He promised long ago. It's only when we acknowledge our true spiritual standing before God that we're humbly driven to seek God's forgiveness. And even that's a gift from God. God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. You know, like in a 
12-step program, what's the first thing that they need to do? You need to admit you have a problem. You can't help someone until they first admit they have a problem. It's Advent. It's Christmas time. So it, it makes me think of the line in the, in the hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, where meek souls will receive Him still, the dear Christ enters in. Lastly, um, it's imp- I think it's important that Luke also adds, and this is very important to Luke because he, this is a theme throughout uh, Luke and Acts that in verse 6, and all flesh shall, shall see the salvation of God. Luke wants to emphasize that this promised salvation that for which we are to prepare and for which God will be preparing a way is for all, not just for the nation of Israel, not just for God's chosen people, but for all. We see that earlier in Luke chapter 2, verses 30 through 32, when Jesus is dedicated in the temple and Simeon holds him up. And says, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This is a message that is not just for the nation of Israel, but is for all people. This salvation is for all that God has prepared Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, this message of salvation is for you. If you're humble and you understand your need for a Savior, you understand that you're a sinner and powerless to do anything about it. I invite you this morning to consider that, to consider your need to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus, where meek souls will receive Him still, the dear Christ enters in. If you have questions, we'd love to talk with you. Ours is a faith based in historical fact. We'd love to examine those truth claims with you. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus, we have an opportunity too, especially as we approach the the communion table to prepare our own hearts to receive the grace and the mercy that God offers us in Jesus, to acknowledge daily our need of Him, to live lives of humble repentance. You know, and uh, Joe's going to come up and... um, introduce communion for us, but as we consider, you know, we're asked to examine ourselves before we come to the table, and uh, we should, not, not in a grim and morbid way, but examine ourselves. Is my life marked by repentance? Yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I make the same mistakes over and over and over again, but do I have a repentant heart? Do I hate my sin? Do I want Jesus more than my sin? Are there things in my life 
that I've become, is there sin in my life that I've become comfortable with, that I have no desire to repent of? Um, Those are questions that we have opportunity to ask ourselves each Sunday as we come to the table. Let's pray together. Father God, as we enter this season of Advent, this season of Christmas, pray that you would give us the grace to receive the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ, that our hearts would be filled with joy in knowing that you spoke after 460 years of silence, and you are speaking again today through your Holy Spirit. Lord, as we prepare to celebrate the birth of a baby, lift up our eyes to look for the coming again of our Savior King, who will make all things again new and will finally and ultimately redeem his people. In Jesus' name, amen.